Hello, everybody. This is Ethics Now producer Colin Troy. I just wanted to let you know that this episode is a little different than usual. The audio and video was recorded on September 17th during the New Mexico Ethics Watch annual event, Ethics in New Mexico, Election 2020, where our host and NMEW Executive Director Kathleen Sabo addressed ethical issues surrounding the 2020 election with our esteemed guests, New Mexico Secretary of State Maggie Toulouse-Oliver, Executive Director of Ole New Mexico Andrea Serrano, and Washington, D.C.-based Campaign Legal Center President Trevor Potter. Thanks for listening and enjoy. As I alerted the panelists uh, ahead of time, one thing that was a bit disturbing but also not unexpected was the amount of um, oh, negative feedback when, when we posted about this uh, panel and symposium on social media. We would get comments like fake news or ha ha, how can there be ethics in an election? Isn't that an oxymoron? Uh, you know, people taking unmerited attacks upon our governor on the post having nothing to do with the governor and other elected officials. And so um, we just want to talk a little bit about that level of distrust uh, and in ethics and elections and voting. And I don't know if you saw today uh, in the New York Times, Dan Coates, the former director of the National uh, Intelligence Office, he uh, suggested that there be a bipartisan congressional commission to oversee voting and make sure that to monitor voting and to make sure that all laws were followed in elections. And in my Facebook feed today was somebody sharing a letter from Bernie Sanders that said, we need social media companies to step up and to not post, um, you know, uh, erroneous information about elections and voting and attacks upon election officials. So let's just talk a little bit about how we can bolster, how, how attendees can, how each of you in your work can bolster the trust in our system and our elections. And, and Trevor, I'm gonna to go to you first on this because I'm gonna to go to you last coming up for something else. So, so what, good morning, Trevor, and thank you again for being here, but, but what can we do to bolster trust in our system and in our elections? I think what's most important is for uh, voters, pe people who are planning to vote, uh, hoping to vote this November, to understand the options they have and that all of the options are equally valid and each of them, if they carry them through correctly, will ensure that their vote is counted because there's a lot of confusion out there about the difference between absentee ballots and mail-in ballots and uh, what happens on election day and uh, is there some difference between how an absentee ballot uh, counts versus if you vote in person. And, and you know, there's, there are partisan battles going on on those issues around the country. New Mexico has no excuse absentee ballot, meaning anyone can request an absentee ballot. Uh, and you also have uh, the ability to vote early in person uh, or to wait and vote uh, in person on election day. So I think what needs to be done is uh, putting out as much information as possible, assuring voters first that they have a range of options, depending on their personal circumstances and whether um, they are particularly at risk or whether they think their polling place might be particularly crowded. Uh, they can 
request an absentee ballot. And I think it's important people know, of course, the two big rules on that, which is they have to request it by the deadline of October 20, uh, and they have to get it in by election day. Uh, some states say it just has to be mailed by election day, and that's not New Mexico's policy. Uh, I, I am guessing, and Secretary Oliver can, can confirm, but I'm guessing that it is possible when you've gotten your absentee ballot at home to deliver it in person, either to an early voting site or uh, on election day if you choose. Uh, if, if you don't trust the mail or if you waited too late to, to mail it, and we've all read about these issues with the post office, to, to be clear there, there is no question the post office has the capacity to deal with a large volume of absentee ballots. Uh, in a single week over the holidays, they deal with 1.5 billion pieces of mail. So, you know, 10% of that at the most is what they're facing spread out over a couple weeks this year on the election. So they have the capacity, but there is a concern that first class mail may be slower because of cost problems they're having. And in fact, their staff is diminished by uh, people who are ill with COVID. So in those circumstances, it may take a little longer to get the ballots returned. And if somebody thinks they're getting close to the deadline, then there are other ways to put it back. But I think assuring voters that there are ways to vote, there are safe ways to vote, their votes will be counted if they follow the rules. Those are, are really going to be the, the key here. And Madam Secretary, so know the facts, and this is a large part of what you've been working on uh, and certainly I'm sure we'll get more questions, more specific questions during the Q&A. But, but what else, other than what uh, Trevor Potter has discussed, helps to bolster the faith in the system and, and elections? Well, first of all, Kathleen and uh, Justice Boston, everyone at New Mexico Ethics Watch, thank you for having me here today. And I'm really pleased to be on this panel with two people I really respect, Trevor and Andrea, um, just doing great work nationally and locally. Um, and, you know, it's funny because Kathleen, you, you sent us an email a couple of days ago talking about this issue, and I've had some time to think about it. And you know, one of the first reactions that I had, um, because in my role as Secretary of State, and of course, when I served as county clerk in Bernalillo County for 10 years, um, you know, I, I think it's really important that those of us that are running elections have the capacity to separate our personal political viewpoints from our position. Uh, when I walk in the door of this office or any time that I undertake uh, the work of this office, which quite frequently happens when I'm at home, uh, sometimes late at night, um, I have to take off my personal political hat uh, and I have to make sure that I am acting uh, in the interest of all New Mexicans, even those who did not vote for me, right? Um, and that when I'm making decisions, I have a lot of authority that's been entrusted to me by the state legislature to oversee and regulate elections in New Mexico. And when I do that, um, I have to make a decision that is going to equally positively impact the roughneck living in a man camp in southeastern New Mexico as the single mom uh, struggling to get by living in northern New Mexico, right? And so when I make these decisions, that's what I'm doing. And when I communicate with the public, that's what I'm doing. However, I, to Justice Bosson's point and to your question, Kathleen, I recognize that um, 
Unfortunately, we are living in a time where the fact of my partisan registration undermines my trustworthiness uh, with people from the other side. And so while I cannot uh, sit down one-on-one -on -one with every person who has questions about my impartiality, everything that I attempt to do in the office uh, is always coming from a point of view of fairness. And one thing that really struck me is uh, talking about this issue of ethics. Um, so as we all know, ethics uh, and laws are, are often two different things. Often uh, ethical values are, are instilled in our laws, but you know, often there are things that we can do that are permissible under law that are not necessarily ethical, right? Um, and I think one of the problems that we are suffering under is that we tend to confuse ethics with disagreeing with the decision. Right. And so when I took office, I swore an oath to the Constitution of the state and the United States um, to carry that out. And if I ever violate that oath of office, I can be held uh, legally liable for that right up to and including, you know, removal from office. Um, so I think it's important for folks to know that um, we do have the system of checks and balances in place. Uh, to hold our elected officials accountable, particularly those who are running elections, especially now in light of the fact that we have this ethics commission in New Mexico, which our office works very closely with to enforce the ethical uh, laws of the state. Um, the last thing that I'll say for this topic is that um, I have this thing here called the Election Handbook of the State of New Mexico. Um, it is a riveting reading if you're trying to fall asleep at night uh, or, or otherwise bored. But what I wanna let folks know about this, and by the way, we have a huge number of hard copies of these. If you're still a hard copy fan here in our office, you can email us to request that we send you one. Um, this book is rife with processes that have built in transparency and ethics into our election process. And every election official in the state is required to follow them. And so from every step of the election process, beginning with making sure that machines are tested uh, and, and are working accurately, um, that they get into the field properly, that the election in a polling place or at the absentee precinct is overseen. Um, these are all public processes. These are all processes with built-in transparency so that even if you personally aren't there to oversee and watch the process at a given polling place, there are ways that we can have impartial and external eyes on the process to make sure that the laws are being followed. And that's the, just the one takeaway that I want everybody to understand is there is no part of our election process other than keeping your personal private information uh, completely secret um, that is not public, that is you know, not otherwise available to be observed. And I, I think it's really important for folks to know that nothing in our election process goes on behind closed doors. Well, thank you for that, Madam Secretary. And so far from Trevor, we've heard know the facts. We've heard from you know the system. Trust that when you're in that office, you're working for every New Mexican. Andrea, what would you like to add to this discussion? How can we help to bolster people's trust in the system and in elections? Uh, thanks for having me this morning. Absolutely. We've got this great panel and, uh, you know, thank you to your organization and participants and really, um, just thinking about this, you know, we at my organization, we engage with voters year round. So whether there's an election or not, we're talking to folks. And 
I think, you know, um, there's this idea that people who don't vote are apathetic or that, you know, they're um, ignorant of, of the issues and what's going on or the process. And I, you know, it's been our experience that a lot of people have lost faith in, in voting um, because there's this feeling um, that it doesn't do anything or that elections don't matter. And I think we've seen time and time again, not just in this current political climate, but we've seen time and time again that elections do have consequences and elections do matter. Um, but it's really about having that conversation with folks and meeting them where they're at. Um, I think, you know, in New Mexico, there's this idea that because we're a people of color majority state, that, that our voting automatically just matches our population. And what we know from numbers after, you know, election after election is that that isn't the case, that people of color in our state aren't voting at the same rate to match the population. And I think that as long as people are disenfranchised, where voters are disenfranchised, we don't truly have ethical elections as long as people um, are feeling like they're not represented. And so I think what our work is to do is to talk with voters, meet voters where they're at, but also how are we ensuring that people are informed about voting, that they know their rights as voters and that voters are being protected. Um, I, I think that election protection and voter protection programs that are happening, not just from LA, but from you know, our friends at NM Native Vote in Common Cause New Mexico and other organizations, everyone is really thinking about how are we protecting not just the election, not just the integrity of the election, but also how are we protecting voters, especially in a climate where, um, you know, there's a call for, for voter intimidation coming from the highest office in our country. There is an actual call for, uh, for you know, and, and what we've seen in New Mexico is this rise in armed um, militias. And so I think that when we're looking at this election, it isn't just about really getting out the vote, it's about people knowing their rights, whether they vote by mail, um, which I'm, I've never seen in all the years I've been in New Mexico, I've never seen, and all the years I've done this work, I've never seen vote by mail um, to this scale. And so I, I do have to just give a lot of uh, thanks to our secretary because I know that that is not an easy feat. Um, but it's also making sure that people understand what their rights are attached to that vote by mail, that they do have the opportunity to check on their ballot, that they can, um, you know, really follow their ballot all the way until and, and make sure that it's counted. Um, and, and then it's, it's also about undoing all of the myths um, as well, because it truly is, I think, um, voters who are already on the fringe and voters who are already disenfranchised, that's the target. That's the target. I mean, I think it's a it's a tactical decision. It isn't an accident that voters, that black and brown voters, that indigenous voters are disenfranchised. They're, you know, um, democracy wasn't built for us in the first place. And so I think that there are considered efforts to uh, to make sure that we are not voting or that we're voting in really low numbers. And I'm not I'm not saying that's like a concerted effort um, by the secretary. I'm saying that there are other groups who actually would prefer that people like me aren't voting. And I think that's for us where we take our jobs very seriously of engaging uh, what, what folks refer to as the new American majority. Well, and you'll remember, I've asked the panelists to feel free to, um, to comment or 
question each other. So before we leave this part of the discussion, if anyone has a question for uh, amongst the panelists, please feel free or a comment even. Uh, if not, we can we can dig in a little bit deeper with, yes, Trevor, go right ahead. Well, I, I uh, you, you threw me the first question and I was so responsive in focusing on it that I didn't say what I wanted to, which is it's a, just a great pleasure to be with you all in New Mexico today. I have been there uh, a number of times in person uh, and, and have had the, the pleasure of meeting people at Ethics Watch and Justice Boston and, uh, of, of course, Secretary Oliver. So uh, I'm, I am glad to, to be with you all today and, and to have a chance to meet uh, Andrea as well. Uh, what I would say is that we are in uh, this odd sort of hyper-partisan time because of the presidential election where the issues that normally are not controversial in terms of voting, like you know, absentee balloting versus mail balloting and how things get counted, su suddenly have uh, a partisan um, overlay on them that I think, as you all have been discussing, makes it difficult for public officials to do their job and organizations like Andrea's to get people out to vote uh, because suddenly it is seen somehow as favoring one party or another to be encouraging people to vote or suggesting one way or another to vote. And, and that's just the reality we all deal with here. I think the best way to do it is to say, look, you know, that's a national issue. It doesn't really affect what's happening here in New Mexico, where our election officials are playing it by the book. As the secretary said, it's completely transparent. There are observers from both parties throughout this process, including the, uh, the way votes are counted. Um, and uh, I mean, just try to, to lower the partisan temperature to the extent we can. Um, recognizing that come election day and, and, and afterwards, uh, if it's a very close election anywhere, uh, then there are going to be questions you all will have to respond to about how the absentee uh, votes are being counted and, and um, you know, who's in the room observing it and things like that. I think uh, one of the, I'm sorry, Kevin. Go right ahead, Andre. Uh, you, you, Trevor, you, made, you reminded me in 2018 in the midterms, um, there was a candidate who declared victory before all of the mail-in ballots and absentee ballots had been counted. And then turns out that person didn't win. So they were you know, calling it a victory and then began immediately questioning absentee ballots and the integrity of the election and the integrity of vote by mail, even though there were observers and watchers. And so that's where I really started to joke, slightly joke, but also serious, you know, that it, it's, it's always fair until you lose is, is I think um, the sort of trend that we're seeing with certain candidates where, you know, the system works as long as you're winning or the system works as long as you're up in the polls because there are states that are receiving mail from the same person who's shaking up confidence in vote by mail and absentee voting, of course, you know, there's, there's states where they're getting mailers that say, make sure you request your ballot and make sure you vote by mail. And so there's this, there's this um, double speak that happens around, you know, and even we all saw the press conference where it was like, um, you know, trying to thread the needle on the difference between absentee voting and voting by mail. And it's um, 
cutting through all of that, sometimes you want to just laugh at it because it, it just seems so ridiculous. And then the consequences of it are so heavy. And so I feel like in New Mexico, that message around not trusting the integrity of the vote and not trusting the integrity of absentee and counting absentee ballots, um, that started in 2018. And I, so it, it almost, it, it feels like we've been hearing it for a really long time because we've been hearing it for a couple of years now. Yes, and I just want to mention in New Mexico, uh, people can type into their browser votenm.org and that takes you right to the... I don't want to be on the side of promoting this information. <laughs> nmvote.org and it takes you right to the voter portal on the Secretary of State's website and there's everything laid out for you. Um, Andre, I want to dig in with you. We're going to go micro to macro a little bit here now for a minute. Um, you, you all hosted a voter, uh, voter suppression uh, webinar, and it's available on uh, Ole New Mexico's uh, Facebook page. And mm -hmm. I encourage people to watch it. And Madam Secretary, you participated. There's a lot of detailed information there. What, so people can actually watch that, and we encourage them to. What are some, what are some takeaways? Why did, why did you feel that was necessary to do even? Are you, are you experiencing some of that on the ground right now? But, I mean, not, you know, actual, not disenfranchisement, but actual stopping people from voting. You know, I think, um, I think that when, when we talk about stopping people from voting, you know, and, and, um, if we're not seeing it, then we don't think it's happening. So if we don't see um, folks blocking the doors to voting, then it must not be happening. But right. I think there are subtle and systemic ways. So, you know, I really appreciated the secretary saying that there are laws that every election official has to follow. It's our experience anecdotally, and I think other election protection folks will tell you the same, that, um, you know, we've had people who um, were formerly incarcerated, who are eligible to register to vote, who are told by, you know, someone in a county clerk's office, uh, no, you, you went to prison, you don't get to vote ever again. And th that's not real, that isn't true. This person actually completed everything they needed to complete and they have the opportunity to vote again. And they're being told, no, no, you don't get to vote by someone who actually is working in that office or We've had people who have been asked, you know, who have been told that they need to present an ID. Voter ID is not, um, you know, required in statewide elections. And now thanks to Local Elections Act, it's, it isn't required anywhere. And that's great. But we still have people being questioned for IDs. And a lot of times um, we have, we actually work with a lot of people who are naturalized citizens who are voting for the first time who um, are older. And so, you know, oftentimes don't, they don't even, they don't know what their rights are around that and whether or not um, they can have a translator, they can have someone help them by reading the ballot to them. And so for us, it's really important that we're putting those messages out there. Also, you know, we're, we are happy that we're a state that eventually um, reinstates voting rights, but we're part of a larger group that's working toward how do we ensure that people's voting rights aren't taken away in the first place regardless of whether or not um, they become incarcerated. You know, and so for us, having that panel was really about one, really um, also talking about race and really being explicit that 
across the country, but also in New Mexico, people of color are voting at lower rates. Um, and how do we ensure that people know what their rights are around that? And so, yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, you have lots of folks who don't know um, that they can lose their voter registration if they're inactive and they have to re-register. And so we've had, a, we've had folks who have gone to vote provisionally who have been told, no, you don't get to do that, even though provisional, you know, ballots are a thing. And so we feel really lucky to have our secretary who always is there to clarify, but we know that there's one secretary of state who can't be in every polling location throughout the state. And so for us, it really is about how do we make sure that our folks know their rights so that if they do encounter a problem, they can say, actually, no, you're wrong. And here's why, right? Um, and so, so you know, um, that for us is, is why we had that webinar, um, but also to really highlight um, and center race, class, and gender and how they're affecting our, ele our elections. Well, and you, you can sort of break down the process of voting to being able to register for a vote being able to actually vote and then being able to make sure your vote is counted. And right. so it sounds like you're addressing all of that. And thank you for that. And uh, Madam Secretary, I'm curious hearing Andrea, is there standardized training uh, for poll workers around the state? Well, that's a good question, Kathleen. Yes and no. Um, at the end of the day, uh, poll workers should all be trained in the responsibilities and the statutes that pertain to their job, and they are. Um, county clerks undertake that really grueling, challenging work of making sure that everybody is well trained. You know, keep in mind that, um, you know, typically somebody who is a poll official, you know, maybe works once or twice a year at the polls. And depending on, uh, you know, now, as Andrea mentioned, we have, you know, sort of consistent statutes around no matter what kind of election we're having in here in New Mexico with the local election act. But for a while there, if you were running, uh, if you were working at a general election, and then you were working for your city for a municipal election, you know, they, they function differently. So to make a long story short, yes, um, they are trained. Uh, each county clerk, though, carries out that training a little bit differently. They each emphasize things a little bit differently uh, because often, um, and, and I can say, you know, from my experience as a county clerk uh, overseeing these kinds of trainings, um, a lot of what we will emphasize has to do with problems that maybe we had in a previous election that we uh, thought we didn't emphasize enough, right? So maybe one election, um, the challenge in Bernalillo County was we didn't have enough poll officials making sure they were counting the number of folks in line. So we had an accurate you know, wait time count. And so we maybe emphasized that and did not emphasize enough how to help a voter with a disability, right? And so, you know, these folks are getting maybe four hours of training, uh, usually once a year, the more experienced poll workers who've done it year after year have the benefit of having gone through the training and the process multiple times, but then they are also challenged with the laws that change and requirements that change. So at the end of the day, um, let me just say this, you know, elections are a very delicate balance. They really are. Um, they are often more art than science. And uh, as election officials, we have two really important uh, values to balance in running an election, and that is the balance of access and the balance of integrity. Um, they're not mutually exclusive. You can have great access and great integrity, but you cannot have it perfectly. 
right? You cannot have either of those perfectly. And so when you are conducting an election and, and training your poll workers and emphasizing certain things that are, and maybe not emphasizing others in the limited amount of time you have, what you really are doing is trying to strike that balance. And so what I think is what I try to always let people know and what's really important for them to know is that uh, because elections are a human process, they are never going to be perfect. The, what we need to do is make sure that we have adequate transparency, adequate safeguards, and adequate fail-safes and process. So, you know, if you have a situation with a voter who doesn't show up on the voter rolls, they have that provisional ballot option, that they can cast that provisional ballot and that the county clerk can go back and double and triple check that on the back end and see if that ballot should indeed be counted. Um, and so these are the types of processes that are designed to help strike that really delicate balance that we are challenged with every time we run an election. And Andrea, can I add one piece to that? I'm sorry. Um, you know, I think one of the things that we're really excited about in New Mexico, and we were able to work with the secretary on this, is same day voter registration and automated voter registration. And, you know, I, um, I look at other states and I look at colleagues in other states and some of the nightmare scenarios that are happening there with voter suppression um, that are outward. And, and when you look at places like Georgia and Florida and sort of, it's, it's just really blatant voter suppression. Um, you know, I think that, I want, I want to be really clear, I think that that's a spectrum, right? And I think that, um, you know, like there's things that are really blatant and in your face. And then I think that when we think about all of the, the subtle messages that people are receiving, again, you know, um, bots are a real thing. I, I know we're sort of sick to death of talking about bots, but they're a real thing and they they've gotten smarter. They've gotten better. And so they infiltrate Facebook groups and they infiltrate social media and, you know, um, they actually learn to mimic the way that that group the, you know, the language that the group uses, and it actually feels like interacting with the real person. And there's um, so much work being done to combat that. And but yet, it's humans who are trying to combat this very, like, technological problem. And so I, I think that, um, you know, again, the more that people understand, like, if you're not registered to vote, you can still show up register and vote that same in that same moment, the more that people understand those things. And I think that's what we feel our big lift is, is to get that word out, particularly to non-traditional voters, then that's where it feels like we have a more even um, electorate, right? An electorate that actually reflect, reflects the needs of our community. I want to remind attendees that they are welcome to uh, submit questions in the Q&A. I see people are also submitting some questions in the chat, but go ahead and line them up. We'll get to a, a Q&A portion. Uh, Madam Secretary, we saw something new this year. We saw, and it's because we have a state ethics commission, we saw a complaint um, filed Monday uh, within the 60-day blackout period, but then we saw the person who made the complaint come forward and say, I've accused my opponent of these violations of Governmental Conduct Act, Financial Disclosure Act. I know you have a joint powers agreement with the uh, 
State Ethics Commission. How is your office going to be involved in that? And, and what do you think of the appearance of this complaint? Will we see more? Uh, every election there are complaints. Uh, you know, it, it's sort of a universal. And in my experience in the three and a half plus years I've been in this office, um, you know, most of the complaints, while concerning, uh, don't necessarily rise to the level of a, a campaign uh, reporting act violation or a uh, governmental conduct act violation. Um, with that being said, you know, that really is the purpose of the Ethics Commission, and particularly because the Ethics Commission was created to have many more tools in the toolbox to enforce our ethics uh, laws here in New Mexico then have been given to me in my office. Um, this particular complaint was referred directly to the Ethics Commission. I don't know yet whether they will uh, bring us into that process, but that is part of uh, the, we have that joint powers agreement and we have regular dialogue on these matters with uh, the Ethics Commission to kind of discuss how to share those responsibilities and if it seems appropriate uh, for the purposes of the Ethics Commission to bring us into the equation, we'll come into the equation. Um, and, and what I will say is this, I mean, this, this issue that you're bringing up about, um, you know, I remember as the law was making its way through committee hearings, you know, this was one of the bigger concerns that was brought up is how do we balance, you know, again, here I'm coming back to balance, right? This is the challenge. How do we balance transparency of the process with the ability to protect, you know, the rights of the accused, um, particularly if the complaint is, is uh, un, you know, found to be without merit at the end of the day or, or does not, you know, there isn't sufficient evidence. Um, and so these are the, the, these are the paths now that the Ethics Commission is going to have to weave that we've had to weave over the years. Our policy in my office is that um, we, when we receive a complaint, we have a process that we go through no matter what the complaint is. We, we do the same thing with every single complaint, um, but we don't necessarily alert the media, right? We're, we're not gonna pick up the phone and call the media and say, hey, we got this complaint. But of course, it is the First Amendment right of anybody filing a complaint uh, to make that information public. Um, so at the end of the day, I think what's really, really important is that there is due process. Whether it, it's a complaint that comes to me or to the Ethics Commission, there is a process that we will undertake that is going to be consistent in every case. And if the complaint is found to be with merit, we will pursue that situation. And if it's not found to be with merit, we will absolve the situation. And, and that's the most important thing for folks to know is regardless of whether a complaint has been filed, there is due process in every, in every sense. And it should be uh, important for folks to know that they should try to withhold judgment on the outcome of that process until there is an outcome. Now, one other thing just to dig in with you a little bit about, I read that today there is a phone call between the Postmaster General, uh, Louis DeJoy and, and the Secretaries of State of all the states. Are, I hope you're not missing that call while you're nope, with that's us. that's later. <laughs> but but I, I'm sure people want to know, uh, you know, there's now a lawsuit out of Colorado because of the, the postcards that were mailed. What's the status of that here in New Mexico? Uh, are, have those postcards been mailed? Uh, and are they yeah. erroneous? <laughs> 
No, uh, so good question. And actually, uh, for me, this will be my second conversation with the Postmaster General. Um, I am currently the president of NAS, the National Association of Secretaries of State. A couple of my colleagues and I met with him initially a couple weeks ago to talk about some of the concerns that secretaries have more generally. Um, and briefly, I will say that from the very highest level of the Postal Service, uh, Postmaster DeJoy and his senior staff down to uh, the local and regional officials here in New Mexico, we have been uh, assured and reassured that elections and mail pertaining to the election ballots applications are, are the highest priority of the Postal Service over the next couple of months uh, until the election is concluded. But we're in trust but verify mode with them and making sure that we have really good communication and accountability mechanisms in place to make sure that that does happen. Part of that is this conversation with the postmaster later today among all of the secretaries. Um, the, po the postcard is out there. I, I got mine actually in the mail the same day it was announced that they were being sent out. Um, and there's nothing in the postcard that is not applicable to New Mexico. If you follow the links on the postcard, uh, they will take you eventually to your local and state election officials. But in a place like Colorado, uh, Utah, Washington, Oregon, that automatically mails ballots out, it could be confusing to those voters because it talks about uh, making sure you apply for a ballot in time. And so I do understand the concerns that those other secretaries of state have, which is why we need the postmaster and his staff have to communicate with us and let us know in advance, you know, what they're planning to tell the public. Okay. Apparently, one of the mysteries here is that some of those states did contact the postmaster or senior postal officials and say, please do not send this postcard out in our state because it is not accurate for us. Uh, it's fine for states where you have to request an absentee ballot but telling voters they have to make a request when in fact state law says that every registered voter is going to receive a ballot will only scare voters who don't know anything about a request and can't find anything about a request on a website. So that's why Colorado went to court and got a court judgment uh, forbidding the Postal Service from sending more in Colorado because they feared it would confuse Colorado voters because Colorado has a different system, but I agree. That's right. Uh, New Mexico uh, seems uh, fully consistent with what that postcard was, as is most of the country. So it's just a mystery why the, the states that are different still got sent that card. And, and to add to that, Trevor, um, so two quick things. To your point, that was one of the requests that we made on the initial call with the, the uh, Postmaster General and his staff is please let us look at, at something before you send it out. Uh, and unfortunately, for whatever reason, that didn't happen in this case. So the conversation today will be about, okay, we got this commitment from you, but that didn't happen. So how are we going to make sure that it does happen in the future? What assurances can we get? What process can we put in place to make that happen? Number one. Number two, part of the reason why uh, what was on the postcard fits so well with New Mexico is because we, as I mentioned, went to considerable lengths this summer during the special sec uh, session to draft the bill that pertains to this particular general election in New Mexico to be consistent with those postal service best practices and guidelines because we did not want to have exactly this kind of confusion. So Trevor Potter, in speaking with you or communicating with you ahead of time, I know there's something you and I both want to talk about a little bit. And I was reading a commentator 
yesterday who's, and he's not a straw man, he just happens to be a music commentator who sometimes commentates on politics. But he said, look, the fight isn't over the vote. The fight is over counting the vote. And he said, we need some bumper stickers. And, you know, he had some that said, like, uh, November 3rd is just the beginning. But there's also another one that might say, count every vote. So what's the ethics involved on the part of the media and others in really letting the public know that this is a process that might be extended, probably will be extended beyond November 3rd? It's a great question, and I think probably the most important point for people to understand as the election unfolds and we get into election week. And I refer to election week because it is pretty clear that with the large number of absentee votes we have in states that are not used to a large number of absentee votes, it will take states a while to count them. And the reason for that is that if early votes are cast by people in person, they're counted on a machine, uh, and on election night, they look at the numbers on the machine, and they know how those early voters voted, and those are numbers available within uh, you know, an hour or two of the polls closing. The same will apply to people who vote in person on election day, because again, at the end of the evening, the polls close, the workers look at the totals, they all agree that's what the machines say. They uh, uh, pass those along. The press observes it. And on election night, we are used to hearing vote totals within an hour or two of the polls close. The national news says, you know, Florida has closed, and here are the early totals, which are right there. What none of that takes into account is the situation we are going to have this year where a very large number of voters, clearly more than enough to swing any election, have voted on paper through the mail or dropping them off, but in what New Mexico has is an absentee ballot. And the problem is that those are not counted. They do not, the states do not begin to count those until at election day and election night. Um, some states, and the secretary may have information on this, but some states don't even touch the envelopes until election night. So they only then begin the process of looking at the exterior envelope, making sure it looks like a valid uh, official ballot envelope, that the voter has filled out the information on the back as to who they are, that their signature matches something on file, etc. Other states are doing that in advance, meaning looking at the exterior envelope and determining that that is going to be a qualified absentee ballot, but nobody is counting them in advance. So the counting takes a while. And some states, you know, the states that do vote by mail all the time, as we've been talking about, Colorado, Washington, um, Oregon, Utah, now Hawaii, uh, this year, California, many of those states have high-speed counting machines because all their ballots come in by mail, they're all the same, and they have a machine that can count them. But most states have machines that count the in-person ballots, which are different in the quality of paper and the format than the absentee ballots. So you cannot take absentee ballots, take them out of the envelope, 
uh, take them out of the inner uh, secrecy envelope and feed them into the normal voting machines. Instead, you either have to have special machines to do that that have been calibrated to these paper ballots or you have to do it in person. Either way, when you start that on election night, this all means that within an hour of the polls, you cannot say, and here are the absentee ballots, because you're just beginning that process. And it will take a day or two days. It is labor intensive. It involves cross-checking, and as we've said, a public process, witnesses from, other, from all parties, et cetera. And so the effect of all that is on election night, at whatever hour the polls have closed and people are reporting results, what we will know is how people who voted on election day or early voted, and not how millions of other people voted, all of whom's votes are equally valid. And so that's the piece of information when what causes me to refer to election week is there are several days of vote counting. Some ballots got counted in the front end of the process and some in the back, but they're all the same ballots legally and all have to be counted uh, and that will take some time. So ethically, what the press needs to be reporting on election night is the first ballots that are counted are the following results, but you know, the majority is still out or a vast uh, number percentage of eligible ballots have not yet been counted. And therefore these results don't tell us anything yet about who won this election. And it is going to be important that people understand this is a unified process with several different pieces depending on how people vote. And the only vote, the only numbers that count are the ones at the end of the unified process when all ballots have been counted. And, and just a, uh, an addition to that, which is New Mexico is, is one of a number of states that does compare signatures. And if there is a question about whether the signature the voter carefully put on the envelope is the same one, uh, the same person who registered 40 years ago uh, and, and whose signature has changed over time, or the same person who registered last year at the DMV on an electronic pad using a stylus and they scribbled something, is that the same as the person who more carefully signed the ballot? When those questions come up, which they will, New Mexico will contact the voters and confirm that they cast that ballot. That takes time. And if you have tens of thousands of signatures being questioned because you have millions of people casting absentee ballots, it will take time for those signatures to be verified and that will extend the counting period. Now it may be, that you only have 10,000 signatures in question and somebody won the state by 200,000 votes. Then we won't worry about it, it'll happen. Their votes will be verified and counted, but the attention of the entire country will not be on you. Uh, if you have 10,000 and somebody won the state by 5,000 votes, then there's gonna be a whole lot of attention to where are these absentee votes and why haven't they been tallied yet. So that's going to be a factor in making this uh, potentially nationally, potentially in New Mexico, an election week. Uh, and that's something that 
the press needs to be aware of and remind people and voters need to understand. And Madam Secretary, I got an email a week ago asking me what was the plan in New Mexico and I said, tune in, we will find out. So, <laughs> so now we're going to find out. Sure. Well, um, first of all, everything Trevor said is exactly right on. I think I spend most of my time when I'm doing interviews with the media, uh, especially national media, talking about uh, what I call normalizing what's normal. Um, the normal process is that it takes days after the election to account for and to tally all the ballots in New Mexico and across the country. And I think that we uh, live in a society that is used to having information right away. Uh, and so folks have gotten used to being able to go to bed on election night, basically knowing the outcome of an election or elections, and then thinking the election's over. Meanwhile, your local election officials and your state election officials continue to toil away, and this is for every election, no matter if the margins are wide or small, counting the absentee ballots that came in on election day, uh, qualifying and counting absentee, or excuse me, provisional ballots, uh, making sure that ballots that could not be read by a machine for whatever reason are hand tallied and factored into the account, making sure that the number of ballots issued is the number of ballots cast, is the number of ballots spoiled, making sure that all of those numbers are straight and accounted for before the results are certified. You are always going to see a different final certified total in the state canvas than you see on election night because local election officials have 13 days and the state has three weeks then to audit and make sure that everything's counted and adds up. And, and only then here in New Mexico can we undertake things like recounts and very close races, which by the way are required by law for a very close race. We will automatically undertake a recount no matter what um, to make sure that those totals are accurate. Um, in New Mexico, we have at least five days before election day that county clerks can begin that process. So all of those absentee ballots that have been coming in since October 6th can begin to be scanned, checked for their information, uh, as Trevor said, the signature, and here in New Mexico, the last four digits of the social. If there is a problem, the voter will be contacted within 24 hours and have the opportunity to what we call cure that ballot in order for it to be counted. They will be separating inner and outer envelopes. They will be separating uh, ballots from inner envelopes, getting them ready to scan, and they will be scanned. We will have uh, a good portion of absentee results on election night here in New Mexico. What we won't be able to have is anything that came in on election day, either at the polling place or at uh, you know that last 7 p.m. mail drop that every county clerk is going to get. So there will be outstanding ballots, that is a given. And to Trevor's point, it's really important to understand, depending on how many ballots are outstanding and hopefully everybody will get the word out, get your ballot in as soon as possible so that clerk can count it as soon as possible so that we have confidence and know the outcome on election night. Um, but there may be a race or two in the state or quite a few that we don't know the outcome until uh, at least a few days down the road with those unofficial results. Right. We're going to jump to a, a question because it's along these lines and it says uh, to all panelists, are you anticipating systemic challenges to the absentee ballots all over the country to slow and attempt to delegitimize the paper ballots? Anybody want to jump in? That's a legitimate fear. 
um, and it, depending on the state and the jurisdiction and the process there, you know, uh, as I mentioned, there will be outside observers. Uh, in New Mexico, we do have a, a position called the challenger. So representatives of the political parties are able to uh, challenge uh, particular votes uh, if there is a good faith basis. Uh, to challenge those on. And that would be a situation where uh, somebody who is not registered to vote casts a ballot, somebody who other than the person uh, who, who they are claiming to be casts a ballot. And this applies to mail voting, absentee voting, as well as in-person voting. Um, what I will say is this, however, um, if there is a bad faith attempt to just, let's say, challenge every ballot, right? Uh, if there is a challenger that's operating in bad faith to obstruct the voting process, whether it be in person or in the absentee precinct, um, the county clerk's duty will be to remove that person because obstructing the election process uh, and, and interposing constant bad faith challenges is a method of obstructing the election process. That is forbidden by state law. I can't speak to what uh, other processes are in other states, but I will tell you that your election officials are very well aware that this could be a potential issue and will do their best again to balance, right? Because that's the key, the rights of the challenger to act in good faith and the, uh, you know, and prohibiting them from acting in bad faith to obstruct the process. And, you know, that at the end of the day is going to be the key. Trevor, I think you're on mute. I am, my apologies. Um, I would add to what the Secretary has said on a, on a nationwide basis that uh, every state has a series of laws in place to dictate how ballots are counted and how any challenges are made to that counting process and to the legitimacy of the, the ballots, as the Secretary has explained. And certainly those processes will be gone through. So if there is you know, a question about a signature or an issue of when the ballot arrived uh, or whether someone is a registered voter, those sorts of issues would, would be fair game. And I would anticipate that if there's a state with a close election, lawyers from both parties would be looking at the, the voters and the ballots to ensure that everyone was qualified, both to ensure that every vote got counted that should have been and that no votes got counted that shouldn't have. Now, what the secretary mentioned, and I think the question implies, is the possibility that people would attempt to engage in extra legal, meaning not through the legal process, but protests or other efforts to disrupt vote counting. Uh, we, we had a, an example of that way back in 2000 in Florida in what is called the Brooks Brothers Riot, uh, referring to people in blue blazers like mine uh, who were banging on the windows and doors and scaring the election officials uh, into getting them to stop counting ballots. Uh, that is uh, an unlawful disruption of the election system and nobody has the right to do that, whichever candidate that they are supporting. And so I trust the secretary is correct that when things like that happen, uh, the, the election officials and law enforcement officials will ensure that uh, the votes are counted legally, properly, uh, as required by law, and that the people who are doing that 
uh, are protected from anyone who is trying to disrupt the system because we are all entitled to an accurate final vote count of every legal ballot. And anything that attempts to disrupt that is, is simply not acceptable in a democracy. You know, and sometimes we don't uh, want to talk about worst case scenarios because we think we might be inviting them. But it seems to me at this point, people are starting to say, we need to talk about worst case scenarios. We need to have things in place. If this happens, if that happens, if there's this challenge, if there are people who show up uh, with guns and, you know, so, you know, I'm glad we're having this conversation because I think everybody needs to be thinking about these things and realizing we have uh, things in place to handle what might arise. I'm gonna to jump to another question. Uh, let's see, can, would the government regula regulate the bots or social media in general if it's interfering with elections without infringing on our privacy and rights? Anybody have an answer for that? Well, <laughs> I think that um, the threats have been well documented and uh, we've seen there's been little um, attention paid by um, governing bodies who could, at the federal level, who could um, actually look at this as a threat to our democracy. And so um, I think that it absolutely Look, I mean, we even have rating systems for TV shows, right? Um, so to say like, you know, the government doesn't have a place to, to do, they, I mean, if Sesame Street has a rating system, then you can't tell me that, you know, there's no like reach into ensuring that um, there isn't interference in our voting system through social media. like. Um, you know, you have the head of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, basically a few months ago saying like, yeah, there's these threats, I'm, I'm not going to do anything about it, right? Um, and so, you know, and you have Twitter after finally years and years of, you know, misinformation, finally they're putting like these little labels on their tweets. And so they absolutely do have the capacity for regulation, um, whether or not they're doing it. I, and, and, and look, I think that... Um, I think it's a slippery slope. I think that it's oftentimes um, people of color and social justice movements that are censored first, or now this like quote unquote Antifa, right? I think, th I think that, that those are the folks who are censored first. So I don't think that we necessarily, I'm not necessarily saying, I'm sorry, there's a loud vehicle that just went by. I'm not necessarily saying like, we just gotta censor all of it. But I think that when we're talking about um, that there's this actual threat to our voting systems there's this, and, and it's known and it's credible and there's reports about it um, and and we've sort of just had an administration that hasn't wanted to, to do anything about it because they benefit from it that's where I think there needs to be um, there needs to there someone needs to step in right um, how far reaching that goes that's that's um, that's a conversation I don't know if we have time for this morning. You know, and I just to just briefly add to that, you know, I, I agree with everything Andrea just said. Um, and I do think that there is more that can be done 
uh, to regulate uh, mis intentional mis and disinformation around elections, although it's again that balance that we have to strike between the First Amendment and you know deliberate um, election interference. But you know one of the things I'll point out is that I think that the the biggest story, uh, you know, we all think the biggest story that came from the Mueller report was uh, that it led to uh, the eventual impeachment of the president, but to me, the biggest story that came out of the Mueller report was that they were actually able to identify uh, and make arrests and bring charges against uh, Russian nationals who, on behalf of the Russian government, engaged in a deliberate attempt to interfere with the 2016 election. Um, and that is a perfect example of when you have a, a Department of Justice official, right, doing his job uh, to, to, you know, do an investigation into one matter, but ends up coming across evidence of, of this type of activity, trying to bring these folks to justice. That is what we need to be doing uh, more of. Uh, and so, you know, my hat's off to, to Robert Mueller for that. You know, we're getting to the point of the program where we're going to soon switch over to the students, but I do have one more question. It's from one of our uh, state ethics commissioners, Stuart Bluestone, and I wanna make sure we get to it. It's for you, Trevor. And I know it's gonna be hard to answer it briefly, but we'll give it a try. So here's Stuart's question. Assuming Trump claims victory early on election night or refuses to concede defeat, what do you envision as the most likely court challenges that will be brought and how and when will they wind up in the US Supreme Court? Please also comment on the dangers that could happen if for whatever reasons, electoral college votes are not certified and properly submitted in the required deadline time. That's not something that you might be able to answer briefly, but you could give it a shot. <laughs> I'll try to be brief. First, I would fully expect that both candidates will claim victory on election night. Uh, and that both candidates will not concede the next day because there's too much of the process ahead. As we've been discussing, there'll be you know, some huge percentage of the national vote that will not be counted the day after the election. So of course they're gonna say, I won, and the counting is going to prove that to be the case. Um, so I, you know, we, the process proceeds from there. Uh, every state certifies their results after a process that involves potentially a recount, maybe some contests, etc. At that point, we may have an obvious electoral college winner, uh, and at that stage, uh, the system goes on to essentially autopilot, the electoral college votes are cast, they're counted by Congress in open session, uh, everyone can see the result, uh, and then on election on inauguration day, January 20, under the constitution, the incumbent president and vice president turn into pumpkins. Their, their term ends at noon. Um, they've either been reelected or somebody else has been elected by the electoral college. That goes quickly to the issue of, well, what happens if the electoral votes from the states are not clear by the appropriate deadline? And there is a, a provision in the law that says, if a state uh, produces a certification of its electors um, by December 8 this year, then that is the presumptive vote. Congress will accept those as the vote. That certification is signed by the governor. Uh, so if everything is resolved by then, fine. If it's not resolved by then in a state, the question is, does it make any difference? 
if it's a state whose votes are not going to determine the outcome because one or the other candidate has won based on every other state, then it doesn't matter. Um, if it does make a difference, if it's the swing state and it hasn't figured out by December 8 who won there, or there are arguments that both sides are saying we won, then that's something that goes to Congress. Um, the, if, mm. there's an abs if there's not a majority in the Electoral College, then there is a procedure where Congress has to look at this and determine which slate to accept and, and who won. But I can assure everyone listening, there is a procedure. And on January 20, there will be somebody who is sworn in as president or in the absolute worst case scenario, which is also provided for by the Constitution, somebody who is sworn in as acting president until such time as uh, the, the issue has been resolved and, and there is a president duly elected. Um, I'm sure our attendees feel the same way. I could hear all of you smart, passionate, people working front and center on the election for a long time today, but we do have to move to the next part of our program. So I want to give each of you a chance to just close up a little here. Tell us, you know, what, what you'd like us to keep our eye on, what, uh, how you'd like us to trust the process, whatever it is that you, um, that you want to leave us with today. And Andrea, let's go ahead and start with you, please. Uh, thank you so much. I, I feel very lucky that we actually have such an accessible um, secretary that we've been able to work with, that we've been able to ask questions directly. Um, and I think that the more that we can continue having these conversations about the realities of elections, uh, not just like the ideal uh, democracy that we'd like to see, but what's really happening. Um, and the more that we can strive to actually have a representative electorate. I think that's where we're going to see, and we because we've already begin begun to see um, how much elections can shift and be you know create a whole new life for New Mexicans. Um, you know, since 2016, we've seen voting rates they haven't declined. They've actually continued to increase. Voter turnout numbers. Um, in school board races and the midterms and then I think, you know, in the primaries um, this year compared to what we saw in 2016, it just continues to rise. And so with that, I think the more that we have these kinds of conversations, um, the stronger that we're going to see our voting systems in New Mexico. So I just really appreciate uh, being able to have, be a part of this conversation. And Andrea, I really appreciate you being here today and taking some of your time out from the great work that you've been doing. So thank you for joining us. This is a great panel. I hope we'll get a chance to maybe convene again. Madam Secretary, how would you like to close today, please? Sure. Well, I've talked a lot today about all the different processes that are in place to ensure the integrity and the transparency and the accuracy of our elections. And I hope that if you didn't know some of those things that you took some of them away with you, maybe uh, can rest your head a little bit easier at night. Uh, I, I know there are a lot of nervous, uh, anxiety-ridden folks out there uh, because not only is this probably the most highly scrutinized election of our time, it's happening during the middle of a global pandemic, which is uh, not the least to say about this uh, election year, right, the challenges that that has created. Um, but let me leave you with this. Um, 
Here in New Mexico, as well as in states across the country, your election officials, regardless of their partisan background, are working extremely hard to make sure that this election is successful, that it has integrity at the, at the very most national level, that we do convene uh, all of those electoral college electors in our states on that day in December when they are supposed to convene, that the processes and laws in each of our states are followed, and the most important thing to know is whatever you see out there on the internet or in social media, especially if it raises questions for you, go to the source. Go to your local or your state election official. Uh, we have a huge campaign through our National Association of Secretaries of State called Trusted Info 2020. We are your trusted sources of information. And again, even if you don't agree with me politically or with the decision that I've made, you can believe that the information that you can find on my website and on your local county clerk's website is the accurate information about how, where, and when to cast your ballot. Um, and so always go to the source if you ever have any questions or any doubts about the election process. And Madam Secretary, thank you also for your time. And I'll echo what Andrea said. We really appreciate your accessibility. It is, uh, it's wonderful. And we appreciate it here in New Mexico. Thank you so much, Trevor Potter. Your turn to close here. Thank you for joining us from DC. Thank you. It's really good to be with you. Today happens to be Constitution Day, the day that is set aside to celebrate the fact that we have a Constitution over 200 years old. You may recall when Benjamin Franklin was approached by a woman outside of Constitution Hall in Philadelphia when the convention was breaking. She said, Dr. Franklin, what have you given us? meaning what sort of government? And he responded, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. And that's something that all of us as citizens have an obligation to keep in mind this year. The Constitution has been amended many times over the years. It has changed from a, a, uh, a document that presumed that the voters would be white male property owners, a tiny segment of the real population to include formerly enslaved people, uh, minorities, and uh, a breakthrough for half the country, women, a uh, hundred years ago. And uh, it is an opportunity through the Constitution for all of us to exercise our right to determine who our government will be. That's what we do in a democracy. And I only hope that as people vote this year and get excised about their candidate or the other candidate and begin to think the world is going to come to an end if their person doesn't win, that they remember the Constitution has to go on and all of us have to operate within the rule of law uh, in order for this country to survive as it is. So uh, at some stage, a little less partisan heat and a little more understanding that we're going to live and work together and that we have a system that can work for us in this election and in this counting process if we let it uh, is, is what we all need. Well, and thank you for that reminder, Trevor, and that moderating viewpoint. Really appreciate it. And thanks again, everybody, for a very civil, informative discussion. Uh, really appreciate it. And like I said, let's do it again sometime. And uh, we'll give your best to our students if you're, if you're going to be leaving. So thank you so much. Really appreciate thanks, it. Thanks all. All right, be well.